I'm liking not just being able to see more of your faces. I like having a cleaner stage where I can walk around and not fear falling over um, and getting hurt or anything and uh, making myself a uh, forever you know, on social media of the pastor who tripped. Um, so it's good. Um, so if I start moving around more and more, just follow me. Um, you know, some of you know that I play golf really poorly, and you also know that I made the great, you know, mistake of my life of not golfing. That's not a picture of me golfing, by the way. Um, but of, of not golfing when I worked on my PhD, which was in St. Andrews, in, which is supposedly the birthplace of golf. And um, when you're in St. Andrews, you can't help it but learn about the history of golf. And, and so golf became such a popular sport in, in Scotland and in Britain, in England, that they actually had to ban it. So there was a, there was parliament put out a decree that banned golfing. In fact, and this I would be in favor of, in fact, what they also mandated was that after church, there would be archery practice. So you would come to church, and then especially the boys and the men would go out and practice archery. But they had to ban golf because the men were playing golf so much that they were no longer practicing archery. And archery was one of the most important things in their military to be able to defend their country. So playing golf was actually a threat to their national defense. You see, what, what the rulers understood that the people didn't understand is that just because you're in a time of peace doesn't mean there's not a constant threat, that there's not constant danger. This is one of the, the messages I hope you've gotten from our study of Ezra and Nehemiah. And if you haven't, go back, listen to the messages. That this problem is not a new problem that they're facing. It is their constant companion and it's not going to go away. It's this problem of syncretism. And it's been a problem all the way back. You go all the way back into reading an exodus and all the way through the conquering of the promised land and in what we read about in Joshua and then Judges. Judges is just, is just an entire book that says syncretism. You keep giving in to syncretism. And then, of course, we even read about the king of syncretism. His name was Solomon. And just a quick review. What is syncretism? Syncretism is when we is when we take, we take already held beliefs, philosophies, and then we modify Christianity to fit those things. So we're not saying Christianity is, is coming in and transforming our understanding of, say, something like freedom or peace or joy or grace or love or forgiveness. No, we're not saying that. Syncretism is the opposite. Syncretism is, I want to understand what the Bible teaches about love, but not really. 
Instead, what I want to do is I want to take my own conceptions of love or my own conceptions of, or the world's conceptions of love, and then just read that into the Bible. Advertising, next week, we're starting Galatians. And in Galatians, one of those words that's, that's been just so misused in, in our society is the word freedom. And people will, will just pour into Galatians this meaning of freedom that has nothing to do with how Paul's using that word. I will tell you, every one of us, every one of us at some level has been affected by syncretism and still hold on to modified understandings, incorrect understandings, of Christianity, of truth, that's not based on what the Bible teaches, but what's based on what we've imported into it. It's not a new problem. It's a problem that's been around for a long time. And of course, the problem with syncretism is, is it can kind of move in two directions. It can come from culture coming upon us, but it also comes from us. And we see the same thing that was happening in, in this time of, of Nehemiah. And you might go like, well, why would God let this dangerous enemy just be running around? Why wouldn't God just take care of this enemy and, and help us? Um, I don't know all the reasons God does what he does, but I do know this. If you knew, as I'm telling you, and if you really believed that there is the danger of syncretism that's always around you and that can come into our church and in fact in some ways is already in our church, here's what it would do. It would make you want to know truth more and more and more. It wouldn't matter what age you are. It wouldn't matter how long you were a Christian. It wouldn't matter how much education you've had. Because you would realize that syncretism could have come in through any of those avenues. It would bring us together to talk about truth. So that perhaps maybe you could point out in my life, like, that's not really what Scripture teaches. That seems to be more like something that you read in some kind of psychology book. Or that's something that's more coming out of, you know, culture. It's not really coming out of scripture. What it, what it would do and what it should do for us is it, it, sh- it, should, it should help us continue to, to refine our faith refine our beliefs, that the impurities in our beliefs would, would be gone. And we would have a truer and purer faith. And that's the problem. The problem is, in our context, one of the ways syncretism is affecting us is this loss in belief in absolute truth. 
Like we just can't believe it because you know all of society goes in the other way. To think that, that the Bible could be absolute truth for some people, and I would say for most people in the world, is just crazy thoughts. You might think like, doesn't everybody think this about the Bible? Doesn't everybody think there's such a thing as, as some kind of absolute truth even if they don't believe in the Bible? And the answer is a resounding no. They don't. And see, if there is no absolute truth, then anything God says is not going to be considered freeing. It's not going to be considered uplifting. It's going to be considered limiting. See, we live in a world today where people prefer the illusion of freedom to true freedom in Christ. I mean, just think about this. If everybody had God's law written in their hearts, everybody had God's law written in their hearts, and we were all living according to that way, do you think you could leave your doors unlocked? Do you think you could go for a walk at 2 a.m.? anywhere in any neighborhood? I think you could. I think you'd be freer. I think you wouldn't have to worry that, oh man, I left my laptop, you know, front seat of the car. If anything, you would worry that someone saw it and thought like, man, they left their laptop in the sun. I'm going to put it in the shade under the seat and leave them a note. That you'd be more worried about that than them stealing it. If God's law was written on our hearts, we would know true freedom. Instead, we take this illusion of freedom and then protect ourselves from each other. You know, I was just in, in California and I went to L.A. And, you know, we stayed in a, I thought, kind of a mid-level hotel, but... You know, my wife's relative told her, you guys, don't go out at night. Don't go, don't walk around that neighborhood at night. Don't go running early in the morning in that neighborhood. Doesn't sound freeing to me. But we're a society that's given up on absolute truth. And once we do that, we move away from God's laws that truly free us and move more towards those things that limit us more and more. You see, this whole thing that's happening in Ezra and Nehemiah is the reestablishment of the covenant people of God. God gave them the covenant because he says, this is the best society you can have, the best society, the best way that you can live. It's the way that you will endure it's the way that, that you will continue, and I'm putting you in one of the most difficult places in the world to exist as a sovereign nation. It's this covenant. There's a whole purpose was to help them. But they constantly gave in to syncretism. So here we are. We're here in this ending of Nehemiah. 
And the nation has been somewhat reestablished. And we learn in the text that Nehemiah has to leave. He has to go back to, um, you know, to the king, the king of Persia. And he has to leave for a little while. And he's eventually going to return. We don't know how long he was gone, but probably not for very long. Maybe a few months, maybe a year or more. But one of the things that we, we look at at first is that some of the things have taken hold, even without Nehemiah there. So in verse 1 of chapter 13, it says, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now understand what's going on. We've talked about this before, about the intermarrying and all of that, that this wasn't an ethnic thing. In fact, in a lot of ways, these people are pretty closely ethnically related. Plus, there's a lot of like kind of multi-culturalism you know, that's already taken place. This isn't an ethnic thing. This has to do with the problem of syncretism. This has to do with your having people who do not agree with the covenant and they're there in the temple worshiping with you. And this is the, one of the dangers of syncretism. When we compromise our worship. We compromise our worship. You see, true worship is worship that comes from God's people to God. It's not directly, intentionally evangelistic. It can be evangelistic. People can come to our, a worship service and they can see God's people worshiping and they can, they can hear God's word and they can say, I want to know why are these people this way? It can be evangelistic. But it's not, worship is not specifically evangelistic in that sense. We even hear about Ezra and Nehemiah. We hear about the, you know, the people in the surrounding area hearing the worship that's taking place in Jerusalem. But make no mistake, when they hear the worship, they're not going, oh, they're worshiping in Jerusalem. Let's go join the covenant. No, they're afraid. Some of them are actually trying to figure out how to stop it. It's this syncretism, this compromising of worship. And we can see in their time, it was the temple. And it wasn't that they were to like separate from the other people completely. It was just in the temple worship. We're going to see later on that, that they're still going to be living with people from different groups. They're still going to be doing business and trade with people from different groups. But this worship was to be the covenant people of God. And so 
we think about this and we go, well, uh, our situation's not exactly the same. And you're right, it's not exactly the same. We don't have temples, not like they had a temple. And in fact, if we read the New Testament, what Paul tells us, Paul says, if there's non-Christians hanging out with you, let them hang out with you. How else are they going to know? In fact, Paul said, you know the people you should get rid of? And even getting rid of them is just temporarily, hopefully, that they'll come back. But those are the people who claim to be Christians, but are not living as Christians. Separate from those people. Embrace the non-Christian. It's funny how our churches do the opposite. We, we don't embrace the non-Christian. In fact, if, if we had people whose, whose sinful lives was more apparent in their outward, you know, how they dress, how they act, how they talk, they would not feel welcome in a lot of our churches. I have prayed and I continue to pray that God will bring more and more people like that to our church. And it's because I believe you guys are ready for them. I believe that you're not going to judge them because of how they look, or how they speak, or the lifestyle choices they've made, but that you're going to love them. We're not saying we're going to condone people's sinful behavior, no. But you're going to love them. But it's funny how we, we accept that. I mean, we don't accept that. We, we, we don't make people like that feel comfortable in our church. And yet, if someone's a church member who may be deeply caught up in sin, we're cool with it. Let's not make waves. If anything, this text more applies to that situation. where people are identifying as the covenant people of God, and yet they're still caught up in sin. And I'm not talking about the sin that we struggle with. I'm talking about the sin that we know is sin, and that we willfully do, and we are going to keep doing it because it's what we do. It's how syncretism happens. And by the way, with, our, with us, worship is different too. You know, I asked this question on uh, Wednesday night. If we decide Sunday morning is going to be more reaching out to the community, where we have people who are Christians, non-Christians all here together, that's great. But then my question is, when will there be worship of just God's people together? Are you willing to come another time where it's just God's people who aren't thinking about who else is there and pouring out your heart to God in worship together? I don't think we have that time at our church. Maybe I'll give John that job. Um, 
But worship is one of the places where syncretism happens. Unfortunately, there's been worship wars fought in churches for the past 40, 50, 60 years. I can only go back 50. That's when I was born. So they may have gone back 100 years. But unfortunately, they're arguing about the wrong things. They're, argu- they're arguing about the kind of music or the instruments or what people wear. They're arguing about the songs. But the syncretism of worship is not all that. All, that's, all that can change. You know, if I somehow could time travel 200 years in the future and I show up and they're doing worship and there's no instruments that I even recognize up there, I would expect it. You think Paul, if he just suddenly showed up in our church, would actually know what this stuff is? He would be singing in a completely different way than you sing. Like the modern tonal system wasn't even set up till just a few centuries ago. And we act like, hey, these are the songs Jesus sang. No, they're not. We've been arguing about all the wrong things. And meanwhile, syncretism is happening here in how we argued. We were willing to compromise God's love We were willing to compromise the love that we were supposed to have for one another and we argued just like the world. That's syncretism. Somebody asked me this question before I became pastor here and it was one of the questions that people asked about the type of worship and I remember that gave me an opportunity to reflect on it and one of the thoughts that came out of this was, was, you know, Before you complain about that other song that somebody else likes, make sure you know why they like it. Maybe that song came into their life at exactly the moment that they needed to hear those words, and you're treating it like it's rubbish. Maybe that's the song that grandma sang to them that always made them feel close to God and you're treating it like it's old and we should just forget it. We forget that this music that people like is connected in part to who they are and who they are in Christ. I I love that at our church we can hear country, even though one country song a month is pretty much the limit. But we can hear country here, and it's okay. You know, we can have contemporary, we can have older songs. We can have songs even from other, you know, Christian groups that you might not find in our Baptist hymnal, and that's okay. What I care about is, are these, are the words connecting with us? Is it giving us opportunity as the body of Christ to worship? Let's not syncretize. This other story, I'm not going to read all the text, just warning you, Cam. But this other story 
actually adds to this where one of the priests actually took part of the temple and took one of the rooms and then made it into either a storage or living quarters for one of the governors of these other people, Tobiah the Ammonite. And this is where we, we learn that Nehemiah has been away. And he says he's, he was gone. And he says when he comes back, he said he was in verse 8, he says, I was very angry and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. You see, there's several problems here. He's not just desecrating the temple. The priest is actually giving something that's not his to give. And he's taking away, he's taking away from the temple employees. You see, the people would give to the temple and part of that would be used for sacrifice but part of it would be because the temple people weren't farming they weren't raising livestock they're taking care of the temple they needed to eat too and so these rooms were like storehouses but this room was empty but instead of asking why is the room empty the guy goes "Ah, it's an empty room let's fill it up we find out why it was empty Nehemiah says, I also found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. They were empty because people stopped giving. They, if you remember, just back in, at the end of chapter 10, when they had this big, like, you know, I would call it a pep rally for Jesus, but Jesus wasn't there yet. But it was this huge, like, worship time, and everybody's excited, and they all say, we will never neglect the house of the Lord. Nehemiah goes on a little trip. They neglect the house of the Lord. And so... Nehemiah says exactly that. I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Now this, when I say this, at first it's not going to seem like it connects to this idea of syncretism, but trust me, it does. Because what Nehemiah is saying here is that we need to take care of and not take advantage of those who serve. There are those who serve. There are those who, whether they be um, paid to serve or whether they're, they're lay people that are serving, there are people who are serving. And the thing about a true servant, and it's why I don't like these passages, I don't like to preach them. Because a true servant doesn't say, hey, look at me serving. You know what I did today? I served God. Good 10 hours. What'd you do? Nobody does that. True servants, they just serve. They don't draw attention to themselves. What had happened and what Nehemiah had to come to correct is that is that the people around them who should have noticed, who should have said, 
we've committed to taking care of them would take care of them. Sometimes that's what it takes. Paul does this. He does this in, in several of his letters. He'll, he'll name people. And one in particular, he talks about Epaphroditus. And he's like, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. He's so awesome, that dude. You guys need to know. And he tells, he tells the church. He says, take care of him. How do we take care? Well, I think the first level is, first of all, just notice. Just notice. Just realize, again, that magic bunnies don't make the church happen. It is people doing things. Everything you have, everything that's online, the worship materials. If you guys get our prayer list throughout the week, that doesn't just magically appear. I wish it did. I wish like how God wrote the Ten Commandments, he would do that with our prayer list. It would be so much easier. But he doesn't. Somebody does that work. How do bills get paid? How does money get counted? These are accidents. We notice, we acknowledge that a lot takes place here. I never really thought about the temple, that there had to be someone who, who swept up. I never thought about that. I just thought like, you know, it's the temple, they built it, I guess it takes care of itself. But there were all these people that were keeping the temple going. You know, getting that gum that that kid stuck under the bottom of the altar table, you know, scraping it off, doing all of those jobs. Somebody has to do it. Do we notice? Well, of course, there's other ways. One is we can just, we can support them. And we can support them in a lot of ways. Of course, you know, there's, people think of the financial way. But understand, you're not giving money to pay people. You're giving money to the ministry, to the church here. And if you're thinking like, oh, I'm paying your salary, you got the wrong idea. Support has to go beyond that. You know, one of the best ways you can support those who are doing things in the church, here, it's this thing, it's called participate. Participate. Don't just come when you feel like it. Participate. When there's a class, grow and learn. Be actively there, engaged. When there's a ministry, show up. Help out. If this is the community of faith, if we collectively are the temple then we, we do things together. And I'm going to tell you, nothing is more discouraging to people who put in time and effort to do something and no one comes. No one shows up. 
I'm going to tell you, the true servant keeps serving. They're not doing it based on who shows up. But if you want to be someone who takes care of and doesn't just take advantage of, show up. Pray. Pray for them. I hope you pray for your pastor because your pastor needs a lot of prayer. But I hope you pray more than just for your pastor. I hope you pray for everyone who's involved. This church has a high level of participation. People that are doing stuff, people that are involved in some form of leadership, pray for them. Encourage them. We need leaders. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians when he talks about his own, his own job. He says, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And he's saying, we, and he was not talking about the church in general, he's talking about he and his fellow apostles. We have this job that we've been given. And we now can teach you and help you And we find here, Nehemiah, the leader, is the ultimate guard against syncretism. And you go, well, how does this connect to syncretism? What connects this way? Ask yourself this question. Why would people go from saying, we will never neglect the house of the Lord, to quickly neglecting the house of the Lord? Something happened. Maybe they just got caught up in the busyness of life. Maybe they just got caught up in, you know, the routine. Maybe they just got caught up in, um, you know, I got to go farm the fields and do all this other stuff. Maybe they just got more focused on their lives, you know, their situation, their wealth, and they forgot about this temple. And you know what? Every time they showed up, the doors were open. The fire was burning. Must be good. It's syncretism. Where we're not thinking of others. And we're just caught up in the busyness of our own lives. There's this other problem that comes in. Again, okay, I'm not going to read all the scriptures. But this is where they were now doing trade on the Sabbath. People were coming into the cities and, and into Jerusalem now that Jerusalem is reestablished as a city and they're doing trade. And of course, this is violating the Sabbath. And Nehemiah, he ends this kind of rant against this by saying, did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Again, syncretism. It's this, hey, the Sabbath is just as good a day as any other day to do business. That's, the people are here. We've been doing this for years. It's just good business. You know, I didn't get to go to Chick-fil-A on the mainland. It's one of the failures of my trip. Um, But you know, 
how much more money Chick-fil-A would make if they opened on Sunday? I don't know. I know there's a lot of, especially in, the, you know, in Texas, after church, <clears throat> the number one question after church is well, not what the message was about. It's where you guys want to have lunch. And we would love to have gone to Chick-fil-A. It was always closed. Not saying we should go back to blue laws about closing everything on the Sabbath. But the bigger question is, are you willing to keep the covenant even if, even if it seems a practical disadvantage to you? Even if it cuts into your bottom line? Even if it takes away from valuable things that you could be that you think you could be doing. Yes, he's talking about the Sabbath, but he could be talking about anything in the covenant that we compromise. So again, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians. He says, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. By the way, Paul's being sarcastic. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. This is the best Christian who's ever lived, describing his life like this. And we think good living, a good Christian life, is the opposite of these things. Become the scum of the world. Paul is one of those guys. I'm not going to compromise. I'll sacrifice everything. The last section, verses 23 through 27 goes back to that same problem we had before, that we talked about before, this intermarrying. And again, intermarrying is not an ethnic issue. It was that they would intermarry and that they would ultimately syncretize. They would ultimately compromise their faith and, and begin to worship false gods and, and follow the, you know, the customs that went against the covenant. And here's my profound thought about this. Syncretism is sneaky and dangerous. Syncretism is sneaky and dangerous. For so many of these things, they, you, could, you could argue that they just make sense. There was good reason to do business on the Sabbath. There's good reasons to intermarry with these other cultures. It would create stronger bonds. It would create better trade partners. It would lessen the possibility of war. There may be all these great reasons. You can talk yourself into compromising God's truth. But make no mistake what you're doing. You're syncretizing. That's why syncretism is so dangerous. Because it's sneaky. 
one day you just, you're just saying it. You're just believing it. You're just living it. And unless somebody comes along and helps you realize you have moved from truth and you are, have syncretized with culture, you, you may not ever know it. One person syncretizing isn't going to cause destruction. One person syncretizing may have a good and happy life. But when more and more people begin to do this and the compromise of truth, it becomes the compromise of God's people. And that's why we haven't touched on all these passages, but you can go back in this whole chapter and you can see how strongly Nehemiah reacts to it, how, how harsh his reaction is to because he knows, he knows that we've only been reestablished for a year or two and we're already back to the same problems that brought our destruction. Will God have the same patience with us that he did with our forefathers where at least they were able to hang around for a few centuries? Or is he just going to say enough? Nehemiah knows it. He does hard things. He takes harsh action. If a modern Christian leader did what Nehemiah did, the person would be roundly criticized, not just from the world, from his own people. His own church would tell him, you didn't act loving and forgiving. You threw that guy's furniture out into the streets. What were you thinking? You should have handled it with more decorum. We can't really deal with sin the way that sin deserves to be dealt with. And it's hard because you care about the people and you see the sneakiness of syncretism and you see the danger and that they're getting closer and closer to the fire. Paul writes again in 1 Corinthians, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Just reading that kind of makes us feel uncomfortable. What's he talking about? Right? We're going to have another inquisition. It bugs us. And yet he's saying... Corinthian church, you think you're being loving, but you're syncretizing. You're compromising. Why no compromise? Why no compromise? Well, one reason is small things get bigger. Small cracks in foundations 
destroy homes. Small little cavities can take out lots of teeth and give you gum disease. The smallest bit of cancer can metastasize. But the positive reason why no compromise? So that our light will shine. So that the light of Christ will shine through us. In Matthew 5, 14 through 16, Jesus says, let your light shine. Be like a city on the hill. How can our light shine if we're constantly dirtying the lens? And then, in the Revelation, it says this, chapter 11, verse 15, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Understand, when you are syncretizing, when you are compromising, you are saying, I'm in the kingdom of the Lord, but I'm becoming more like the kingdom of the world. This is saying, why are you doing that? Why are you going back to the thing that's going to be transformed into the kingdom of the Lord? Why? This is the whole reason we were created. To be the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. This is it. And we constantly want to compromise and syncretize. Ezra Nehemiah, I wish Ezra Nehemiah ended like with a party. Like, hey, we're, you know, we've got the wall, we've got, you know, everything's great. But it doesn't. Because the problem hasn't gone away. They're better, they're stronger, they're more solid. But the problem is still there. And I think for us, I like that. I like that to know that I think our church, coming out of the pandemic, I think we're stronger. I think we have a deeper heart to know God's word and to serve. I think a lot of us have a stronger connection with one another. But the threat is still there. And we need to continue to to pray and to guard our hearts. We need to continue to know God's truth. Watch each other. Help each other. And then see what God's going to do as his light shines through us. 